Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, and welcome to another exciting episode of Reconsider, where we don't do the thinking for you. Today, we're going to be talking about education and the U.S. education system. We'll be interviewing Lena Corda, who was the San Francisco Mayor's Office recipient of the Teacher of the Year Award, and we'll be interviewing her in actually another episode that we broke off. In the second episode, we say that it's going to be part of a single episode, but just for clarity's sake, we actually decided to break those into two different episodes, so you'll be able to download that separately. In terms of some housekeeping and big news for the Reconsider podcast, before we get into the meat and potatoes of this episode... Very big news. Very big news. Reconsider has joined the Agora Podcast Network. It's a network, it's a collection of a number of different podcasts that are both history and policy and politics related. So we're really excited to be a part of this network. In terms of another show that's really worth checking out on the Agora Podcast Network, there's one called English Renaissance History, hosted by Heather Tasco. Yeah, and right now she's in the Tudor period, which is my favorite period. So she's done the Spanish Armada. She's doing Shakespeare. She's doing all the intrigue in Elizabeth's court. She'll be getting into Henry VIII soon. So it's all, it's bloody. It's exciting. There's betrayal, backstabbing, music. It's a good time. I recommend it. Awesome. So check out Agora. Check out Renaissance History Podcast. If you get the chance, remember to check us out on Facebook and Twitter at ReconsiderPod. And if you could leave us a review on iTunes, we'd really appreciate it. It helps us get up in the rankings and get the Reconsider message out to more folks. So without any further ado, let's talk education and education narratives. Now, Eric, there are some myths that we came across when we were researching our interview material for Lena. And I think that's the approach that we want to take in talking about education in this episode. Yeah, I mean, the more that you look at secondary or tertiary, especially media material, the more that there are these common narratives that get people's blood really fired up, uh, that gets them excited about, you know, clicking the link or voting for the person and stuff like that. And so we decided to go, huh, there's a lot of these myths that are competing when a lot of myths that people seem to agree on and... I guess, spoiler alert, a lot of them don't hold up to data. And so in this episode, we wanted to kind of shatter a lot of the common myths about what's going on before we get some knowledge bombs dropped on us by Lena in the next episode. Yeah, we wanted to feel prepared before we talked to her. So we're just going to go over some of the context research we did before we 
turn over the next episode. So what are some of the common narratives that we've seen? One of them is the biggest one is that the United States has a really bad education system. And usually this is followed up with, if we change X, it'll work great. Now, before we go into some of these narratives, we need to understand what we're doing relative to under other countries. And the most common way that people measure the performance of students between different countries is using the Program for International Student Assessment, or PISA. The PISA tests reading, science, and math in the same way across a bunch of different countries. And within the OECD, which is the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which largely represents the United States peer economies, the United States ranks in the PISA pretty below average in science and math. Uh, we're about average in reading, but across all three, our scores are stagnant. So given that, a lot of people go, ah, it's broken, it's doing a bad job, and I know how to fix it. We address a few of these myths in some blog posts that Xander and I both actually made for the Reconsider blog, which you can find at reconsidermedia.com slash articles. And so we'll think of those as companion posts. We're going to give you the high-level stuff here. So the first myth that I often run into is that the United States needs to spend more on education, implying that we don't spend enough on education compared to other countries. We underinvest, and if we invested more, we would perform like them. Yeah, so the U.S. spends actually quite a bit of money on education, both in terms of absolute dollars, which is just total dollars spent in aggregate, as well as dollars spent per capita and it's per student. And that's a better way to break up the spend because the U.S. is a big country and you can't compare total dollars spent to like Switzerland, right? So we look at it on a per student or per capita basis. And across OECD countries, so countries like the U.S., the U.S. actually is about fourth place in terms of total per pupil spend as of 2007. And the only countries that actually came ahead of the U.S. in per capita spend are Norway, Switzerland, and Luxembourg. Although using the data that we have from the National Center for Education Statistics, the Luxembourg, specific, uh, Luxembourg statistic is not exactly apples to apples because it includes pre-elementary funds and the other dollars don't. Still, the United States is by far on the high end of the spending per pupil and is far higher than the OECD average. Yeah, and to make things more complicated, Norway, Switzerland, and Luxembourg also have very, very high costs of living. In Norway, you can like famously get $14 beers at your local pub and stuff like that. So, so relative to many of them, it, the United States spend maybe even closer to where they are or even higher if you adjust for that. And one of the ways to adjust for that is if we just look at how we're spending as a percentage of GDP, we're still in the top five. There's only two countries that spend more than we do. And we actually spend 6.5% of our GDP on K through 12 education. And this is actually a whole lot more than our military. And what's interesting is when I was seeing the, we need to invest more in education, one of the implied things was frequently that we spend a lot more on our military and on wars than we do on educating our students. And it just happens to not be true. 
Right. Although it is important to take into consideration that when comparing it to military spend, it's not exactly apples to apples because most military spend comes out of the federal budget, right? Whereas the 6.5% education percent of GDP includes federal, state, and municipal yeah, exactly. And most of our spending is at the municipal and state level. So anyone that's looking this up and going, hey, wait, the federal government spends way more on the military than on education. That's definitely the case because the federal government's education budget is mostly on grants or assistance or kind of contest programs like Race to the Top and stuff like that. Right. So then another criticism might be, OK, yeah, yeah, well, the U.S. spends more per student on education than some other countries if we get to this point but you know we really don't spend enough on instruction a lot of that money is wasted goes towards other things and some of it might be wasted but in terms of a high level breakout of the categories in which we spend on education we spend by far the most on instruction and just so you know what the different categories are there are instruction student support instructional staff services operation and maintenance administration transportation and food services and instruction makes up about 64%. So about 64% of all educational spending in the U.S. on a per capita basis, again, per student, goes towards instruction. So a lot of that is going to teacher salaries and, and stuff like that. Now, if we wanted to drill down even more, what comprises this instruction bucket? And the vast majority is salaries. There's salaries, employee benefits, and then some instructional supplies and other small categories. But the vast majority of that instruction bucket is salaries plus employee benefits for teachers. Yeah, and so I know a lot of people say, ah, we don't pay our teachers enough. And one of the ways that they benchmark that, one of the my favorite memes that I've ever seen running around is there's this picture of this nice lady, presumably from Finland, and it said, you know, when asked why Finland's uh, education performance is so good, this teacher said, we pay our teachers like doctors, the opposite of what America does. Now, of course, nobody is so self-aggrandizing to say the opposite of what America does in any statement ever, unless they're maybe Hugo Chavez, and look how well they're doing. But So you should be suspicious of that quote. But it's actually just false. Turns out Americans... American teachers get paid way more than Finnish teachers, over 30% more. And if you adjust for higher cost of living in Finland, it's even better. The United States is in the decisively in the top five of teacher salary, especially if you look at early salaries. So starting salaries for teachers, very high. They're in the top four. And we're tied with countries like uh, South Korea and Germany that are super high performers on the PISA and well ahead of Finland and below countries like, you guessed it, Norway, Switzerland, and Luxembourg, which have high salaries sort of across the board. So it while it may be the case, this doesn't not this does not necessarily mean that market forces wouldn't come into effect, right? If you paid teachers a lot more, would you get higher quality people and more people competing for those jobs so you had a better pick? Perhaps. But the idea that, oh, if we were only more like country and paid our teachers as much as country, everything would be fine. That's not the case. And it also goes to show that you can have countries that pay their teachers what the US, what U.S. teachers are paid or less and still outperform the United States. So there's something more going on there as well. 
So when that happens, people tend to go like, well, you know, if you look back at Finland, yeah, maybe they don't pay their teachers as much, but it's this like magical place full of rainbows and unicorns and they do their education system totally differently from the United States. And only if we were more like them, it would be fine. So a lot of people compare the U.S. to Finland and because their outcomes are better, they say, well, you know, their system must be better. And so what are some of the differences we see in Finland? One of them is there's a lot less homework. School starts later for children at seven rather than five. Um, and they get a lot of pre-school care when they're young, where they just kind of play and socialize. They have fewer hours of school. They have more recess. They have less standardized testing. They don't have any grades at all until high school. And they have slightly smaller class sizes. Now, for those of you in K through 12 listening to this, I'm sure you're thinking like, wait, more recess, less homework? This sounds awesome. I definitely <laughs> want it, right? I mean, it's what I would have wanted. I loved recess. And so you might say, well, you know, this might be a really good model to look at. So, of course, we can't say decisively that switching to a more finished system wouldn't work, right? But if we look at Korea, which is the other super top performer on the PAISA along with Finland and actually beats Finland in two out of three categories – They've got a totally opposite situation. I think a lot of people don't like to look at Korea because it's got some sort of inconvenient facts about its system. So what does Korea have compared to the United States? Well, more homework. And school starts earlier in a child's life. And it's super high pressure. It's a drill, drill, drill kind of atmosphere. They have tons of testing. They have less recess. Uh, grades are really important. They have class ranking. So that Finnish meme of the opposite of what America does should really be the opposite of what Korea does, even though they perform just as well as we do. So in short, it's really hard to look at a country like Finland and say, oh, if we had less homework and more recess, we know that performance would improve because performance correlates with recess or performance correlates with less homework. Because if you look in the complete opposite direction, you have a country like Korea doing just as well. And so I think we have to at least do a lot more thinking about what are the causal mechanisms that we might be looking at between the Korean and Finnish systems that are leading to higher performance. And of course, there may be stuff outside of the school system entirely that's causing these guys to perform so well. Yeah. Now, I just want to hop back to the case of Finland real quick one more time and, and pretend that we live in a world where correlation is the same as causation. So causation <laughs> just doesn't exist. You know it, Finland has the highest per capita rate of metal bands in the world. And since their mm. education system is so well, I think we can safely conclude that more metal bands per capita leads education scores higher. So maybe it is a magical place full of rainbows and unicorns if you're a metalhead. Yeah, it's true. Really, really long-haired, long-maned unicorns that are just headbanging everywhere they go. The faster the guitar solos, the better your science <laughs> scores. It's science. Exactly. It's science. Uh, but, it, you know, so we can look. So, you know, looking at the education system, you're like, well, you know, maybe if we did things differently, it'd be great. But we did, that's not as clear as I think a lot of people want to believe. And so then a lot of people look outside of the education system itself to try to understand what might be driving lower U.S. scores. Sure. So... What do we know about statistics that really do correlate very strongly with low test scores? Well, one of them is above average poverty rate. So 
poverty correlates very strongly with a decrease in educational success. So this is this is fairly well agreed upon among education experts. And I'll link in the description to Xander's really good post about that. You'll get to see the great graphs and the discussion around that. Right. So the argument is since above average poverty is correlated with lower test scores, then if in the United States there is above average poverty relative to other countries, then perhaps that above average poverty in the U.S. can be an explanatory factor for the lower test scores. So the question then, of course, is does the U.S. have substantially higher poverty comparative to similar countries like OECD countries that could explain these lower test scores? I have a feeling I know the answer just based on the context. Yeah. And in this uh, blog post that I wrote, I kind of came across, it, it was an interesting back and forth. It was almost like an academic debate, except it was occurring outside just in journalism land. So across, uh, am- among a couple of journalists and, and researchers that were writing more like popular articles. And the debate was, well, how do you measure poverty? Do you do it with one metric called relative poverty? Or do you do it with another called absolute poverty? And I go into more depth in this article, but Relative poverty just basically tries to benchmark against some country-by-country benchmark, and absolute poverty does it a different way. Now, if you look at the United States poverty with relative poverty, then we do have above-average poverty rates compared to other OECD countries. So then the argument that poverty is linked to these lower test scores in the U.S. makes more sense using that metric. If you use absolute poverty rates then this is a completely different story. And one of the researchers in this debate that I came across was saying that relative poverty rates really aren't as effective a way as describing poverty, at least in this particular discussion as it relates to education, because absolute poverty rates are much more highly correlated with lower test scores. So even if you think that relative poverty is a better way to describe poverty generally, there's a higher correlation with absolute poverty. But using absolute poverty, the U.S. does not have above average poverty. So that, that was kind of the argument. And I, I get into that in a little bit more detail on the blog. We'll put a link up. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Yeah, and to make things even more complicated, different countries measure poverty in different ways. And so, for example, the United States is a 13% official poverty rate, and that's based on three times the food budget for a family of four in 1967 adjusted for CPI. And you kind of look at that, Uh, so you can thank LBJ for that one. His team thought that was a great idea. 
if we actually use a different metric, what's interesting is the Census Bureau is starting to look at this alternative metric. Again, I'll link you to the blog post about it. About the same percentage of people are in poverty. It's just a totally different group. But if you look at these, this absolute poverty as far as percentages, the United States is, you know, hanging around with 13.5%, which, you know, that's a thing. The UK is higher at about 16. Finland is about the same at 14. China, as it turns out, is only at 5.1, so good for them. You know, Russia has a lower rate at 12%. Belarus is at 12. And so it's one of those things where you scratch your head and you go, hmm... You know, I wonder how you're measuring poverty to be able to come up with that, because it's not all the same thing, right? And even if you try to create some sort of absolute measure across countries, uh, it'd be a little hard because it's like, well, you need to adjust for cost of living. But then again, you know, rent might be lower because you're living in a hovel rather than, you know, a real place with safety standards and air conditioning and such. And so sometimes people use the Big Mac index. I mean, it's a mess. And so the short version is it's hard to tell what the poverty rates are between different countries at all. And even when you've got a decent idea of it, there's little evidence to say that the United States sticks out in absolute poverty. Right. Now, another way to try to gauge this poverty versus educational success, or at least test scores, is by looking at how the U.S. does with poor students on average versus richer students on average. So the bottom socioeconomic quartile is the jargon and the top socioeconomic quartile. Now, recognizing that on average across all countries, education success is worse with poorer students, you can still say, okay, well, if there's a trend, if there's a relationship between how we do with top socioeconomic students versus bottom socioeconomic students, how does the U.S. compare to other countries? And we'll post this chart up, but again, it falls right on the regression line, which means that poor students are not actually dragging down U.S. average scores. Other things that you can infer from this chart is that France and Belgium do relatively better at instructing higher quartile students, so richer students, and they do a poorer job at instructing lower socioeconomic students, and Finland and Canada do relatively better at instructing poorer students rather than rich students. And again, the U.S. falls right on this line, so we're about equal at both, understanding that everyone does worse with poorer students on average. The last thing that I found really interesting while searching through all this is it turns out that the United States total spend, even adjusting for inflation per student, has actually gone up 90% over the past 40 years. And that's possibly a great thing, right? Some people might be like, oh, that's wasteful. And some people may go, oh, we need to do even more. You know, we've doubled it. That's fine. But we need to do more. The United States has its own, uh, from the Department of Education, its own internal way of measuring math and reading scores called the NAEP, or the National Assessment of Education Program. And NAEP scores in the United States have also been totally flat. In fact, they've gone down a little bit recently. But in particular for those graduating high school, uh, because they take measurements at different ages. But for those who are 17 and about to graduate, just been totally flat over the past 40 years. And so what's particularly interesting about this is the fact that we've pumped a ton more money in double per student into the U.S. education system and haven't seen it improve. 
the poverty rate in the United States has dropped since the early 1970s, and we haven't seen an improvement in these scores. So I think my biggest takeaway from this was that if we look at these simple high-level metrics, right, poverty, spending, and then some anecdotal stuff about recess or amount of homework or amount of standardized testing, it's really hard to find even just a correlation between something about the United States in one of its high-level metrics and its scores that is explanatory, or at least that suggests something explanatory. In short, you can look at all these high-level metrics, and it appears that none of them seem to explain why U.S. scores are stagnant or why we perform below the pack of our economic peers. It's not how much we spend. It's not how much we pay teachers. It's not our poverty rate. Probably not amount of recess. And so what we realized after looking at this is that, okay, we need to get a lot deeper here. Things are actually a lot more complex than the amount of money you throw at something. They're a lot more complex than what's the average recess time, stuff like that. And so that's why we decided to interview Lena. She's really super busy and we're really grateful that she gave us the time. But what we realized that we and you guys, our listeners, needed was a look into what's actually going on on the ground, right? So what is a teacher actually going through? What are the specific conditions they see? And what are the specific problems that they're running into and the stuff that hangs them up? You know, you talked about some high-level metrics and and how it's difficult to make inferences based on those. Perhaps what was even more disconcerting to me after finishing up this research is that when you dig down from that high level and you really get into the nitty-gritty of where all this data is coming from, there's just not a lot of good data out there. I mean, part of what was really interesting to me about this debate that I came across, which again, links will be online, is there were a lot of methodological disagreements about how these metrics were constructed, saying, well, you know, you can't do it this way because you need to make these estimates between these two points, and, you know, the math doesn't really work out that way. And the the one thing that both of these folks agreed on was that there's just not a lot of good, especially recent good data out there with which to make decisions. So the big takeaway from at least the research that I did is we need more educational research performed. We need more data collected so that we can even begin to answer these questions in a more effective way. Because if we're going to spend time and money and energy and resources and political capital working towards a solution, we better be sure that we're working towards the right solution. Yeah. And in this episode, we do not deign to dream that we have the skills or the resources to be able to give you the answer. So anyone sitting here thinking, Eric, Xander, I wanted you to tell me what to do about education. We don't know. What we set out to do was understand what was going on. And we realized all we understood at the end of all of our research was what's not going on that people happen to think is going on. So what we want you to do in this episode is walk away going, okay, good. The stuff that we thought was true before isn't. And that means that now I don't have to waste my time and I don't have to waste natural resources trying to implement this stuff that I thought was going to make the change. So hopefully it actually feels like a big step forward and that everyone's minds are a little cracked open and going, okay, we know nothing. It's time to learn some stuff. And so tune in next time uh, for our very fun interview with Lena. 
We learned a ton. Uh, we were just students that entire time. So Lana does all the teaching. And you guys, too, will be able to go through the same process that we did, in which we didn't let the pundits do the thinking for us. We stopped, listened to Lena, and we reconsidered, as we hope you will, too. This is Eric signing off. This is Xander signing off. We'll see you on the next one. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.